Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we would understand uh, its teaching, its significance for our lives, that we would be brought uh, to the same place where this passage both begins and ends of praising you for your, your greatness and your power and the glory of who you are in your reign. We pray that you would lead our hearts to do this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, uh, we've been in the book of Daniel's the last few weeks, and uh, the book of Daniel is concerned with this part of Israel's story where they are in exile. And we've been saying this is incredibly important for followers of Jesus uh, to think about and consider because the New Testament tells us in a few different places that we who believe in Jesus, who belong to his kingdom, are exiles in this world. We, like Daniel and his friends, live in a world that is not our home. We live in a world that increasingly in our post-Christian culture, we find ourselves in spaces where many, if not the majority of people around us, don't share our faith, don't share our core commitments And so we have a lot to learn from a book like Daniel. And one of the things that I hope that we're learning and that we'll continue to see in Daniel is that we need need a deep resilience, or as we've titled this series, a rooted resilience. And our text, Daniel 4, gives us another ingredient, another piece that we need to have this very rooted hope and faith and love in God While Daniel is concerned, uh, obviously, with Daniel and his friends, we see chapter 4, this chapter is almost entirely focused on Nebuchadnezzar, who in many ways has already been a major character in the opening three chapters. But here in chapter 4, we get Nebuchadnezzar's last words. And really, if you were paying attention to what was being read, what we have here is a testimony. We have a testimony of, at that time, the most powerful king in the world, a pagan king who testifies to the greatness of God. If you look at uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, he sends out this official proclamation, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth. He says in verse 2, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. In this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar tells us what he has come to understand and know about God, what God has done for him. And in this chapter, this testimony tells us that God is the real king, and God is able to humble. And this humbling is something that not only Nebuchadnezzar needs, but really every single one of us needs. So I want us to think about two things as we look at this chapter this morning. First, I want us to think about what we continue to see in Daniel, that God is the real king, and then to consider our need to be humbled before him. So again, throughout Daniel, really the message that we keep running into is that despite what it might appear like in your lived experience, despite, you know, what happens in the world, God is in control. God is 
the real king. If you remember back to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream, the first uh, group of dreams recorded in Daniel, and it's of this four-part statue, and uh, there's this rock that comes, and it smashes the statue, and it fills the whole earth, and it's sort of this like 30,000-foot you know, view telling us in all exiles, God is the one who's really in control. There may be these kingdoms that come up, you know, in the world, but, but they're not going to last. They're human kingdoms. They're not rock solid like God's kingdom, God's kingdom that's going to come and fill the whole earth. We need Daniel chapter 2, but we also need Daniel chapter 4, because in this chapter we see the detailed and personal way that God is in control. We see how God is at work in the details of one man's life. I want you to think about how it's one thing to hear and believe that God is at work in the big picture. So maybe it's like, yes, I believe God is at work and he's doing cosmic things and one day he's going to make all things right and he's going to bring his kingdom in all of its fullness and yet that can feel so distant and so far away and so not connected to my life right now. And living in exile is hard. Sometimes it's easy to acknowledge the big picture. God is going to build his kingdom, but yet fail to see the ways in which God is at work right now. The ways that God is at work to build his kingdom right now in your life, in your marriage, or in your family, or in your kids' lives. How God is at work right now on your block in your school, at your job. To have this deep resilience, this rootedness by which we can live faithful lives in exile, we need not only that Daniel 2, like 30,000 foot picture, but we need Daniel 4 and to see how God is at work in people right before our eyes. And this is really important because as we keep going through Daniel, one of the things that we're going to see is that the nations and the kingdoms in Daniel are painted in a pretty negative way. We'll see this especially as we get into chapters 7 through 12. They are depicted as beastly and violent. And the sense that you get is, this is going to be really hard. There's going to be suffering uh, it's going to get really tough, but hold on, God will win in the end. And if that's all we had, if that was in a sense all we had in the Bible, and we didn't have Daniel 4 and other chapters like it, it could direct us to be people who live in a way where we just isolate ourselves from the world, and we have this attitude of, it's going to get really hard, it's going to get really bad, the world's going to burn, it's all coming to an end, let's just huddle up. Let's just huddle up and try to, try to hold on to each other until the end. I love that this text uh, is happening on the same day that we sent Redemption Church and that we're doing this particularization thing because I want you to think about how you would never plant a church if that is your view of the world. Like, why would you ever send people away, send money, send resources, send bodies to make two congregations vulnerable when we could just band together and just hold on? You do that 
because you believe that God is at work. Daniel chapter 4 is reminding us that in the midst of exile, the real king is working out his cosmic plan, but he's doing it in the details and on the street life of regular, everyday people. And that sometimes God demonstrates how he is the real king by turning someone like Nebuchadnezzar to himself. I want you to take a moment and I want you to think in your mind someone that you cannot possibly imagine ever believing in the God of the Bible, ever believing in Jesus, ever following him. Do you have it? That's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar might be seemingly further away than anyone that you can imagine. I mean, if you've been with us throughout Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is not exactly the kind of person that you look at and you say, here's a guy who's really close to believing in the God of the Bible. Right? I mean, think about it. He laid siege to Jerusalem. He looted the temple of God. He takes the best and the brightest from Israel and he brings them to his culture to train them in his religion. He is literally a pagan idolater. And this chapter in Daniel reminds us God is at work. And God is able to humble people of God in exile don't be afraid. God is at work. God brings Nebuchadnezzar to the place where this pagan king acknowledges, look at verse 3, God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then at the end of, of this chapter, verse 35, where he says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and, and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And jump down to 37, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you believe that? Do you live with that sort of anticipation that God is at work in the real world? He's doing things. I don't always see it. I don't always understand it. Sometimes it's confusing, but he's at work, and he is the real king, and he is able to humble. I said this um, uh, in a sermon this summer, but I want to say it again. Um, we need testimonies. We need to be reminded of this. We need moments today like where we hear from people at Redemption testifying to the faithfulness of God being at work in their church. We need to be reminded uh, because some of us, God's been at work in our lives in profound ways. In the last 10 years, in the last five years, God has done things. He's turned us. He's changed us. He's grown us. And we need to hear about those things. We need to hear it in community groups and discipleship groups. And as, we're, as we connect and get to know each other, at times, we need some of you to be so bold to come up here and tell us. Like we were so thankful when Ted Powers did a few months ago. We need to be reminded in the midst of exile that the real king is at work. And what we see him doing in this text, and what I said earlier, the thing that we, that we really need him to do in all of us 
is this work of humbling us before him. So let's look at this middle section of the text, really Nebuchadnezzar's story that he tells. So like in chapter 2, again, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream that terrifies him. This is verse 5 and following. So he gets all the wise men of Babylon, and they can't interpret it. Finally, Daniel's brought in, and like in chapter 2, he can interpret the dream. So verse 10 and following, Nebuchadnezzar describes this dream, and basically, right, we see this huge cosmic tree with lush leaves and abundant fruit, and it's so big that it gives shelter to all the animals and it feeds all the creatures. And this is important. This image of a tree is significant. In the ancient Near Eastern world, a tree was often used in iconography to represent the divine world order that was maintained by the god, or as, as the king, rather, as representative of the god. So sometimes when the king is pictured as the tree, which is what's going on here, because Daniel is going to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree, in the ancient Near Eastern world, here's what this means. The king is being depicted as the true image of God. Now, if you're thinking about the Bible and the whole story of the Bible, this is Genesis, right? You think of Genesis, where God creates humanity in his image. And this image is given rule, given dominion, which is a theme that we see all over this chapter in Daniel. This dominion is given as a gift. It's to be exercised as a way that reflects God's rule. And this is why, right, when Daniel interprets the dream, verse 27, he calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to renounce your sins by doing what is right, renounce your wickedness by showing kindness to the oppressed. Because the warning of the dream ultimately is, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that tree, and you're about to be stripped of your kingdom And you're going to become like a beast until you acknowledge God, the Most High, the Sovereign who rules over all. And despite this warning, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, he's walking on his roof and he's just taking in what was probably a beautiful sight. His kingdom, all of its glory, his awesome life, and he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built And as the boast is still on his tongue, a voice comes from heaven declaring the verdict, your royal authority has been taken from you, and immediately the dream is fulfilled, he's driven away, and he becomes like a beast. Now, I just want to ask, what is going on here? You know, is this just, I don't know, like the Bible's version of beauty and the beast? Like, just kind of strange. No, there's something really interesting here. Remember Genesis 1, humanity is created in the image of God, What does an image do? It reflects. An image is meant to reflect the original, reflect God. Human beings were made to image God, and so a fundamental aspect of what it just means to be human is that you are a reflector. You reflect. You can't help it. And we see this phenomenon all the time. I had like 15 different examples of this, but I'm just going to give you like a couple this is why marketing works, right? This is why if, if you're young and you play soccer, you want the Adidas shoes that say messy on them. It's, it's why you want to wear the jersey. It's why if you're into like baseball, and I, I'm not a big baseball guy, but right, you want the bat or the mitt or the shoes that that player wears and that player endorses. 
It's why I secretly, although not anymore secretly, want a John Mayer PRS guitar. Because there are these things that like grab our vision and our imagination and these things that we, we kind of love and we look to and it's like, what if I could look like that? What if I could sound like that? What if I could wear that and become that? We can't help but reflect. But think about Genesis. We're made to reflect God. What happens when human beings turn from God? We don't stop reflecting. What happens when human beings choose in the garden to listen to a serpent? Genesis calls it a beast. Instead of listening to God, we become beastly. And you see this right away in the Bible because Cain murders his brother Abel, and then as uh, Lamech, a descendant of Cain, boasts in his violence and he says, I'm 70 times more vicious than Cain. We see it in the Psalms. It's why in Psalm 73, the writer says that when he was looking at the wealth and the prosperity of the wicked and he was embittered toward God, he says, I was like a beast before you. What we reflect is deeply tied to what we most love. What we're really after in life, which is to say what we worship. As one of my former professors put it, what we revere, we resemble, either for restoration or for ruin. Both Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and the king in Daniel chapter 5, as we're going to see next week, they are arrogant. They are prideful. They are full of themselves. One is humbled and turns away from his pride toward God. He is restored. The other does not and is destroyed. Now, I've used this uh, quote before, but I'm going to get out that old quote from David Foster Wallace, postmodern author, literary genius, not a Christian, who said in his famous commencement speech, quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Listen to what he's saying. Everybody worships, not just the people in this room. Everybody you know, the people on your street, the people you work with, the people in your school. Everybody worships. And he goes on to say, the compelling reason maybe for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Which is another way to say, if you are an image and you center your life on something other than God, what you most desire, what you most love, what you're most after is not knowing God and loving Him and adoring Him and thereby reflecting Him if your ultimate point of reference is something else, if you ultimately revere and love and look to something else, it will dehumanize you. Think about it. David Foster Wallace goes on to specifically note power. He says, quote, Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. We literally saw this last week in chapter 3 of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar, his power is so fragile that three Jewish 
teenage boys threaten it when they won't bow down and worship the statue. And so he gets outrageously angry and he throws him in a burning, fiery furnace. But it's not just power. Worshiping and making our ultimate love anything in creation makes your life and my life as fragile as that thing. For many of us who live in this area, right, many of us here, many of our friends, our family, our neighbors, we've probably made pretty good choices. We've done pretty well for ourselves. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't live here. You don't have to be a bloodthirsty, power-hungry person to identify with Nebuchadnezzar. You can be a relatively good person. You, you can be pretty good compared to others. You can be relatively moral. You can believe in God. You can go to church. But you can get up each day, and as you look at your life, and as you look at your accomplishments, maybe you look at your career, you look at your family, and you say, look what I've done look what I've built. And your gaze is focused on yourself. It's all about you. It's all about what you can control and what you can accomplish. I want you to listen to these words uh, from the British theologian Graham Tomlin who says this about the danger of pride. He says, it all looks good from the outside and works for a while at least as long as your moral achievement remains constant and nothing much goes wrong. Right? Your family is good, your kids are good, or your job is good. But when out of the blue your spouse tells you that they've met someone else and wants a divorce, or your child gets into some kind of trouble, maybe it's drugs or drinking or driving, or they just fail to do anything really with their life, what will you do then? And what will come of your self-worth? You will be burdened by regrets, weighed down with a deep sense of failure and shame, a life shattered among the ruins of pride. When life starts to fall apart, if what you have centered your life upon is that thing that is falling apart, will you be full of patience and love and grace and gratitude and faith? Or will you be beastly, angry, bitter, unable to tell the truth, unable to face the truth? It is never pleasant, but it can sometimes be a gift when God reveals the fragility of our misdirected worship. I want you to think about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was beastly before he became a beast. In chapter 1, right, he lays siege to Jerusalem and he takes the best and the brightest and he sends them basically to Babylonian re-education camp to strip them of their Jewish identities and make them Babylonians. Chapter 2, he wants to kill all the wise men because they can't interpret his dream. Chapter 3, he says, if you don't fall in line with my unification plan, you're going to go and burn in the furnace. He was already a beast. But now he's come to experience it. He's come to experience the, the dehumanized life of where he is, the beastliness of his pride and his arrogance and, and his autonomy, and in some ways it was the best thing that could have happened to him because of where it leads him. Verse 34. 
At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. What makes the difference? It's worship. What led him to become a beast? Misdirected worship, false worship, inordinate love of himself, of his glory, of his greatness. What restores him? True worship, right? He raises his eyes toward heaven. He looks up toward the one he was created to know and image and reflect, and his sanity is restored His humanity is restored. And true worship will restore our humanity. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, we have an even greater and more clear picture of the glory of God and the beauty of God, and it is in the face of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son who took on flesh, who Colossians 1.15 says is, the image of the invisible God. The Son, Hebrews 1.3 says, is the exact representation of God radiating God's glory. In Jesus, we see the beauty of a perfect human life, perfectly loving God, perfectly loving neighbor. We see the truth of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God embodied in a person. We see the love of God in Jesus who gives himself willingly for us and our sins that we might be brought to reflect the image we were made to reflect, that we might be restored to true worship. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we look to him, beholding and contemplating his glory, his beauty, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. This week, I I read something that really struck me. Uh, In his book, Prayer Revolution, uh, church planner and author John Smed, he writes this, he says, The Christian life begins with prayer. Prayer is the first breath of a new believer. Once the first breath happens, the rest of life is simply a matter of continuing to breathe. I love that. And and as I was thinking about the text, I was like, Nebuchadnezzar's life in this text, I think we can say the same thing about worship. The Christian life begins when we look to Jesus in faith. It's like that first breath and the rest of life is just just keep breathing. Just keep breathing. Take it in. Suck in all the oxygen. That's what you need to breathe. If we starve ourselves of worship, gathered Sunday worship, communal worship, right, sharing life together, personal worship of, of reading scripture, of prayer, it's like trying to go through life and just hold your breath. Sunday, in a sense, we could say is it's a reminder for us to breathe. It's not the day that we, you know, 
suck in oxygen so that we can go and hold our breath all week, but it's the day where we, we suck in oxygen and we remember how good the grace of God is and how good Jesus is and, and we marvel at his glory and we adore him and we worship him so that as we head out into the next week, whatever, whatever happened this past week, we head out into the next week saying, I'm going to keep breathing. I'm going to keep looking to Jesus and I'm going to turn him in prayer and I'm going to adore him, and I'm going to think of him, and I'm going to reflect on him because he is changing me and making me human. This is who we're meant to be. And so what I want us to do right now is just take a moment, as we do every week, in prayer. So this might be a time where there's areas of our lives where I think you think of this past week and I can see some beastliness and to confess that to God, those areas of misdirected worship, but then also to adore him, to knowing that he receives us and he gives us grace upon grace to forgive us and renew us. So let me give us a few moments to pray and then in a moment I, I will lead us in prayer.